Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our November-December 2018 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Young adults discharged from inpatient psychiatric care for the first time have a much higher risk of dying unnaturally compared to their peers. Most studies have examined only specific causes of death, such as suicide or accidents. However, these findings cannot be used to directly compare risks for one outcome versus another because they have been investigated in different populations. Researchers in Denmark, funded in part by the European Research Council, recently examined a variety of unnatural causes of death in a national cohort. The study followed nearly 1.7 million people from their 15th birthday and compared those who were discharged from psychiatric treatment for the first time to individuals without such a history. Discharged persons had a higher risk of dying from each unnatural cause examined, especially suicide, within a year of the first discharge. Among the methods used, jumping from height had the highest relative risk. Relative risk was also higher for intentional self-poisoning than for violent suicide methods. Additionally, a marked increase in risk for accidental poisoning was observed among individuals diagnosed with a psychoactive substance misuse disorder. The authors emphasize that it is crucial to improve the support provided to young adults when they are first discharged from inpatient psychiatric care. Additionally, given the high risk for death by poisoning, it is important to ensure that patients take their medication rather than hoarding it until they have a sufficient amount to attempt suicide. Early and effective treatment for misuse of alcohol or drugs is also indicated. The association between tobacco and psychosis remains an emerging avenue of research. Psychotic-like experiences, or PLEs, are defined as subclinical expression of psychosis reported in non-clinical settings. To disentangle the association of tobacco with PLEs, the authors examined data from Wave 2 of the National Epidemiologic Survey of Alcohol and Related Conditions, a large U.S. population-based, nationally representative sample conducted from 2004 to 2005 that included nearly 35,000 adults. Participants were assessed in face-to-face interviews with the Alcohol Use Disorder and Associated Disabilities Interview Schedule for dsm 4 Researchers analyzed 22 PLEs covering the broad spectrum of psychosis. Participants were stratified according to their smoking status. The authors found a significant association between smoking status and 14 of the 22 assessed PLEs. These associations remain significant after adjustment for sociodemographic variables, lifetime drug use disorder, and past-year cannabis use. While 26.3% of non-smokers reported at least one PLE, This prevalence was slightly higher in former smokers, 27.5%, 
and rose as high as 39.1% in current smokers. All 22 PLEs had higher prevalence in smokers than former smokers or lifetime abstainers. About 9% of smokers reported at least 5 PLEs compared to 3.5% in lifetime abstainers. These results suggest that smoking status was associated with various PLEs. As this association was not explained by any other known risk factors of PLEs or schizophrenia, the authors conclude that there is a need to identify the potential neurological mechanisms by which smoking and PLEs are associated for patients and for public health. Growing evidence indicates that brief contact interventions might be reliable suicide prevention strategies. These are non-intrusive interventions that seek to maintain long-term contact with patients after a suicide attempt, such as crisis cards, phone calls, postcards, or text messages. They usually involve a short sentence expressing concern for the patient and emphasizing the availability of help. Researchers in France recently conducted a study evaluating the effectiveness of a decision-making algorithm combining brief contact interventions to reduce suicide reattempts after patient discharge. In this randomized multicenter parallel trial, people who had made a suicide attempt were randomly assigned to either an intervention group that received brief contact interventions or to a control group that received treatment as usual. The primary outcome was the rate of suicide reattempt within six months. Of the 1,040 patients who were recruited, 12.8% of those in the intervention group reattempted suicide within this period, compared with 17.2% in the control group. However, the difference between groups was not statistically significant. Interestingly, the study did find an absolute reduction in fatal and non-fatal suicide reattempts and loss to follow-up at both 6 and 13 months. The researchers emphasized that the preventative effect of such interventions may be reinforced by integrating them into multimodal approaches and long-term follow-up strategies. Major depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Cognitive impairment, a core feature of depression, may partially explain altered functioning. However, previous studies supporting this hypothesis have several limitations, including a small sample size, a cross-sectional design, or subjective measures of cognition. In this large-scale population-based study, depressive symptoms and cognitive functioning were measured with standardized tests among 7,426 participants aged 45 years or older. Role limitations and social functioning were assessed up to two years later. Taking into account sex, age, year of inclusion, education, alcohol intake, and cannabis use, the authors found that altered functioning at follow-up was predicted by both depressive symptoms and poor cognitive performance at baseline. As expected, depressive symptoms were also associated with poor cognitive performance at baseline. 
However, a mediation analysis revealed that cognitive performance accounted for only 0.3 to 1.4% of the relationship between depressive symptoms and functioning. In contrast, depressive symptoms accounted for 195 to 43.7% of the association between cognitive performance and functioning. In other words, in middle-aged adults from the general population, cognitive impairment was unlikely to substantially explain the association between depressive symptoms and later role limitations and social functioning. Depression itself, however, could partially explain the link between cognitive and functional impairment. From these results, the authors conclude that interventions aiming at reducing the functional impairment associated with depression, which is a public health issue, should primarily target depressive symptoms themselves. Such interventions are likely to improve cognitive functioning at the same time. Predicting relapse is a major challenge in treating schizophrenia from a clinical and medico-economic point of view. During the last few decades, major psychiatric disorders have been found to be extensively associated with metabolic disorders, even before the illness onset. However, no study to date has explored the potential impact of metabolic syndrome on relapse. In the current study, researchers in France, with funding from French institutions, followed up 185 adult patients with a DSM-IV TR diagnosis of schizophrenia for one year. 37% of stabilized schizophrenia outpatients with a mean illness duration of 11 years experienced a relapse at least once during the one-year follow-up. Patients with metabolic syndrome at baseline had three times higher risk of experiencing a new episode of psychosis during the follow-up period. The findings demonstrated that metabolic syndrome strongly predicted relapse at one year, independent of illness severity, insight into illness and treatment characteristics, including patient compliance. The authors conclude that further studies should explore whether reducing or preventing metabolic syndrome could help to protect patients from relapse of schizophrenia. Substantial age differences exist in rates of suicide and suicide attempts. Understanding the factors contributing to these differences may help refine prevention and intervention initiatives. Because psychiatric disorders often co-occur, it remains unclear whether the risk of suicide attempt in older and younger adults is due to specific psychiatric disorders or underlying psychopathology dimensions, i.e. internalizing and externalizing dimensions. Also unclear is whether the extent to which individual psychiatric disorders contribute to suicide risk varies by age. In this large, nationally representative longitudinal survey, the authors used structural equation modeling and examined the shared and specific effects of several common DSM-IV Axis I and Axis II disorders on the three-year risk for suicide attempt in four different age groups. They found the effects of psychiatric disorders on the risk of suicide attempt were almost exclusively mediated through a general psychopathology factor representing the shared effect across all disorders. 
The magnitude of this effect was significantly greater in younger than in older adults. No individual disorder had an additional effect on this risk in any age group. These results highlight the importance of performing suicide risk assessments in individuals of all ages with any psychiatric disorder and the potential value of interventions that can simultaneously target multiple psychiatric disorders for individuals across the lifespan. Polypharmacy, defined as the concomitant use of five or more medications, has been reported to have a negative impact on cognitive function, leading to delirium or subsequent dementia in later life. But the extent to which polypharmacy contributes to subsequent mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, in late life, and how to quantify the negative impact of polypharmacy have not been determined. To explore these issues, researchers in Taiwan, with support from Taiwanese institutions, conducted a nationwide face-to-face study with random sampling based on the proportion of all Taiwan counties. Subjects received in-person interviews between December 2011 and March 2013. Study nurses recorded data on medical histories and medication use, as well as on lifestyle habits, such as drinking tea, coffee and alcohol, smoking tobacco, chewing betel nut, getting a good night's sleep, and taking naps. Cognitive function tests included the Taiwanese Mini Mental Status Examination, or TMSE, and the Clinical Dementia Rating, or CDR. Of the 7,422 people aged 65 years or older included in the study, polypharmacy was associated with a 1.75-fold increased odds of MCI and a 2.33-fold increased odds of dementia. Subjects with polypharmacy had a 0.51-point decrease in TMSE scores and a 0.1-point increase in CDR scores compared to those without polypharmacy. Drinking tea, good sleep, regular exercise, and social activities were found to be associated with higher cognitive function scores. Based on these results, the authors recommend that patients be prompted to discuss their medications with their physicians to determine if any are inappropriate in their overall treatment regimens. Patients should also be encouraged to maintain good lifestyle habits that may keep their cognitive function sharper. Cannabis use is common among individuals with psychiatric disorders, and yet providers are often unsure how to determine which patients are at risk for problems related to cannabis use and how to help. This month's ASCP Corner article focuses on cannabis use screening, assessment, and intervention, including both behavioral and potential psychopharmacologic strategies. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Most patients with Parkinson's disease, or PD, will experience symptoms of psychosis during the course of illness. The most common symptoms are visual hallucinations and a false sense of a human or animal presence. A major contributor to the under-recognition of PD psychosis is the failure of patients and caregivers to report symptoms to healthcare providers. 
They may not realize the symptoms are related to PD or they may be embarrassed. Additionally, clinicians may spend most of the patient's consultation time focused on motor symptoms. And yet, diagnostic criteria and treatments for PD psychosis are available. To learn more about treating PD psychosis, read this online exclusive CME supplement, Supplement 1 for 2018, supported with an educational grant from Acadia Pharmaceuticals, for an update on effective assessment questions and treatment steps by two experts on the disorder. Identifying biomarkers of treatment response is important to improving treatment outcomes in late-life depression. Previous studies have identified an association between depression, cerebral blood flow, and white matter hyperintensities. A recent study sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health investigated cerebral blood flow changes in a sample of patients 50 years or older who had major depressive disorder and were treated with a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Increased cerebral blood flow in the middle and posterior cingulate was associated with decreased depression severity following treatment. This finding supports the vascular depression hypothesis, which suggests that cerebral vascular changes are associated with depressive symptoms, especially in later life. Further, the changes did not occur after a single dose or even after a week of treatment, but were present only at the end of the study, suggesting that the changes were slow occurring over the course of the trial. These regions are particularly susceptible to localized lesions known as white matter hyperintensities that appear in late life and may be caused by factors such as ischemia or myelin loss. The authors hypothesized that the increase in cerebral blood flow may be normalizing. However, they could not test this hypothesis without a non-depressed control group and longitudinal studies are needed to further understand the implications of these changes. Many studies have found that cannabis use is associated with cognitive deficits. However, it is not known whether these deficits improve once individuals stop using cannabis. This issue is timely, as the perception among youth, and often their parents as well, is that cannabis use on the weekend does not affect their ability to learn and perform in school two or three days later. This study, which was funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, addresses a critically important clinical question about the impact of cannabis use. Is there a potential beneficial effect of short-term cannabis abstinence on learning and cognitive performance in older adolescents? To investigate this question, the authors examined differences in cognition measured weekly for four weeks between cannabis users who abstain from use for 30 days and those who continue to use cannabis. They found that abstinent users experienced a significantly greater improvement in memory than those who did not refrain from use and that this cognitive improvement occurred in the first week following last use. These findings suggest that the negative effects of cannabis on memory are most likely reversible with short-term abstinence. Lithium is an effective treatment for mood disorders. In older lithium-treated adults, lithium level and renal monitoring are recommended every three months to prevent serious adverse events. 
This is particularly important in older patients who may be at higher risk for chronic kidney disease. In this issue's CME offering, funded by the Ontario Mental Health Foundation, the authors examined lithium monitoring practices in a large cohort of 11,006 older adults. The study included province-wide administrative health data from older lithium and valparate users aged 66 years and older in Ontario, Canada from 2002 to 2014. The authors examined the frequency with which serum lithium levels were monitored and renal and endocrine laboratory testing was done over a follow-up period of one year. At least one serum lithium concentration recorded within 90, 180, and 365 days of follow-up was present in 24%, 42%, and 67% of lithium users, respectively. Corresponding numbers of serum creatinine were 30%, 50%, and 75%, respectively. Absolute differences between lithium and valparate groups with regards to serum creatinine, thyroid-stimulating hormone, and calcium testing were not clinically meaningful. In this large sample of older lithium and valparate users, lithium monitoring was infrequent and inconsistent with international standards that call for screening of lithium levels and renal function every three months. The authors conclude that from both a research and public health perspective, finding ways to improve lithium monitoring is necessary. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the November-December table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Two known risk factors for suicide are alcohol intoxication and alcohol dependence. To investigate whether suicides in alcohol-dependent individuals vary according to time of day, researchers analyzed data gathered by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on 3,661 alcohol-dependent individuals who died by suicide. They also explored whether a circadian variation in suicides differed based on whether the alcohol-dependent individuals were intoxicated. The recorded time of injury was considered the individual's time of death, and intoxication was defined as a blood alcohol level of 80 milligrams per deciliter during the postmortem examination. To evaluate an association between intoxication and suicide-related risk factors, the time of death was divided into four-hour periods across the 24-hour day. Results showed that 60% of the alcohol-dependent individuals were intoxicated before committing suicide. The peak incidence of suicides was at 9 p.m. in the intoxicated individuals. This contrasted with an earlier peak of 12 noon in non-intoxicated individuals. Further analysis showed that intoxication between 8 p.m. and 12 a.m. was associated with more risk factors and protective factors. The authors conclude that critical times for suicide exist in alcohol-dependent individuals, and these times vary based on whether individuals are intoxicated prior to suicide. Young people are often first identified as having psychotic disorders in the emergency department. 
However, little is known about the care they receive there or the care they receive after they leave. To examine the rate of follow-up care, researchers in Ontario, Canada, with funding from Canadian institutions, reviewed all provincially funded services used by a cohort of 16 to 24-year-olds who presented to the emergency department with psychotic disorder for the first time between 2010 and 2013. They found that 40% of youth discharged to the community after their first emergency department visit for psychotic disorder received no outpatient mental health care within 30 days. The likelihood of receiving timely psychiatric aftercare was increased in youth with higher income and a recent outpatient psychiatry visit. It was decreased in rural youth and those with a recent psychiatric admission. Drawing from these results, the authors emphasize that Given the importance of reducing delays to care in youth with psychotic disorders, access to services must be improved. Many studies of older adults have demonstrated a close association between physical frailty and dementia. However, the impact of physical frailty on caregiver burden and behavioral and psychiatric symptoms of dementia, or BPSD, remain unclear. Researchers in Japan, with support from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, recently conducted a cross-sectional study to investigate the association of physical frailty with BPSD and caregiver burden in nearly 1,200 patients presenting to a memory clinic and diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Physical frailty was assessed by using the Frailty Index which consisted of 38 deficits, including functional impairments, geriatric syndromes, and comorbidities. The frailty index was calculated as the ratio of actual to potential presence of the 38 deficits. Results showed that higher frailty index scores were significantly associated with severe BPSD and caregiver burden. Although this cross-sectional study cannot prove a causal relationship, the results may indicate that cumulative deficits can contribute to occurrence and severity of BPSD and caregiver burden. The authors conclude that further longitudinal studies are necessary to confirm these associations, as well as to establish successful strategies for management of BPSD and caregiver burden in Alzheimer's disease. Could you tell the difference between an odds ratio and a risk ratio? In a new installment of his clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade usefully illustrates these important statistical concepts by discussing ways in which the occurrence of sexual adverse events with dutasteride and finasteride has been reported. In another column, Dr. Andrade considers a recent study in which tamsulosin, a drug used to treat benign prostatic hyperplasia, was associated with an increase in the risk of dementia. That study serves as a point of departure to show ways in which readers can think more critically about study methodology when interpreting results. The full text of these columns is freely available online. Please visit the November-December Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the November-December issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. 
You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.